But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. Would you say those words with me? They'll come on the screen and you can see them there. Say that with me. But God demonstrates his own love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. Now, I know you just sat down, but would you stand up one more time? I want to hear you say that with your out loud voice. Say that truth with me. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Let's pray. God, more than anything else, I suspect all of us need to see afresh again your great love for us. May we have new eyes. May it sink deeper in our hearts. May you be glorified today. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. We're beginning a brand new series today, but first, I want us to have a little bit of fun, so it's going to require your participation. So let me just warn you now, you will need to participate. So put your thinking hat on. And I want to ask you, since COVID hit a year ago, can you believe Many of us haven't gone to movies. How many of you have actually gone to a movie theater in the last year? Wow, this is so, it's so good to be in Texas. Yeah. So how many of you, let me ask you this. Many of us have gone, isn't it great to go to the theater, you eat some popcorn, you get something to drink, you're just kind of enjoying, the lights go down, the trailers begin, and you say, you know, it's a great movie. It's great whenever the movie actually lives up to your expectations, and every once in a while, it will exceed your expectations. Isn't that wonderful? But sometimes it completely fails to meet your expectations and it completely disappoints you. You know those movies? For me, that movie is Pearl Harbor. I thought when I went to Pearl Harbor, and you may be a huge fan of Pearl Harbor, and that's okay, but I thought it was going to be this great military historic focused movie, but instead it felt more like a romantic movie. And that's okay, I just wasn't expecting that. I asked my wife what her movie was that maybe disappointed her, and she said for her it was Into the Woods. I don't know what your movie is, but here's what I would like you to do. Think about the movie that you were just sort of disappointed in a little bit. And what I want you to do is I want you to ask your neighbor, somebody who's sitting beside you, what's the movie that disappointed you? And then you share with them what's the movie that disappointed you, okay? So take just 15 seconds. share, And if you don't have one, just make one up, all right? Take 15 seconds and just share with your neighbor the movie that may have disappointed you. And if you're online, go ahead and just get your fingers ready and shoot that into us and let us know what movie it is that disappointed you. All right. So hopefully you've thought of one. You've made one up if you need to. That's totally okay. We won't know. This is completely an opinion. So that's, this is completely uh, subjective. All right. So in this section to the far right, can somebody just shout out a movie that disappointed them? They thought it was going to be a lot better than it actually was. What do you have? No, in this section over here, we got to follow the rules, okay? We're going to start to your far left. All right, what do you have over here? Somebody Empire Strikes Back. So there's some opinion. Shane disagrees with you. Good, I like the energy. Let's get this going. We're going to really come together here today. How about in this section? Who has a movie that disappointed them? Just shout it out. 
Did you say, I heard a really deep voice say the notebook. I'm glad. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's, that's great. All right, how about right here? Here's a movie that, you, that really disappoints. What is it? Little Women 2019. There's quiet, there's silence, so either, either we, we probably didn't see it, some of us, right? What was it right here? Wonder Woman 2 and Spider-Man. I'm okay with that. I just feel like there's a little tension here. Some folks who really, some folks that maybe really like that. How about right here? What's a movie that disappointed you? Anybody? Insurrection. Yeah, it's a good book. What's that? Inception. Okay. Anybody else right here? Now, by the way, those of you online, that was PG, and he said Dumb and Dumber 2. If you would have stopped at Dumb and Dumber, I would have been disappointed. Dumb and Dumber 2, yes, sir. All right, right over here. Anybody? Avengers Endgames. Any disagreement on that one? A little bit of disagreement, so I love that you threw that out there. We got a little energy. That's what we want. One last section. Anybody over here have a movie that disappointed you? What is it? Lady in the Water. Did you have expectations for that movie? I've never heard of that movie. But don't go. See, now you know. That's why you come to church. Don't watch Lady in the Water. All right. Here's the thing. Isn't it great when you like go on Yelp and you have a five-star review, you go to a restaurant and it lives up, but then sometimes it just doesn't, right? Or your favorite band comes out with an album, you download it, and all of a sudden you're like, ah, favorite author, new book, it just doesn't live up to maybe something you've read in the past, and it just doesn't live up to your expectations. And that's the way life is, though, sometimes. But here's the question. What do you do when life doesn't live up to your expectations, when life doesn't turn out the way you thought. And there's a gap between what you expected and what you experienced, right? We've all been there. Maybe some of you are even there right now where you thought you would get into a certain school, but you didn't. You thought your career would be in a certain place, but instead you're here. You thought maybe that your marriage would be better than it actually is turning out to be, and it's not, you're not as happy as you thought, or maybe you haven't been married, or you never thought you would be divorced. Maybe you thought your children would turn out a certain way, and you're struggling because here's a new reality, or your grandchildren. Maybe you thought you would have more uh, financial freedom than you currently have. Maybe you thought your health or the health of a loved one, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a place where you've never thought Your life would turn out this way. What do you do when life doesn't turn out the way you thought? When your life doesn't turn out the way you expected? And here's a maybe heavier question. Where do you find God's goodness when all your circumstances are bad? Where do you find a God who's good? Where do you look when it feels like you thought life would go this way and instead you thought a God that you could follow would lead you to a better place? What do you do when life doesn't turn out quite like you expected? But see, today we're going to follow a group of people who are following Jesus real closely, and yet he doesn't do what they thought he would do, and their life doesn't turn out the way they thought it would, and they're going to become completely disillusioned. We're beginning a brand new series today called No Matter What, 
you are loved. And if you're brand new, this is your first time here at LifePoint Church, well, I am so glad you're here. And just know it's my first time at LifePoint Church. And we're going to, yeah, we're going to get to do this together. And we're beginning a brand new series today, and here's what we're doing. We're beginning a five-week series where we're going to study the final week of the life of Jesus. I believe it's the most important week in human history. It's the most important week in your life and mine. Because in this one week, from Sunday to Sunday, the world forever changed because of what happened in this week. And we're going to begin that very first day today, and we're going to retrace the steps of Jesus, and we will see the most important week that ever occurred in history. In fact, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first four books of the New Testament, they believed that week was so important that if you took all their books together and you were to take the content that they wrote, they focused one-third of their writings on that final week of Jesus' life because they knew it was that important. So let me just give you context for what we're about to look at. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 11, that second book in the New Testament. We're going to begin in chapter 11, Mark chapter 11. Let me give you context for it real quick. Jesus would always take this journey, along with all the other Jewish people, to Jerusalem around the Passover. If you're not familiar with the Passover, quickly what the Passover simply is, is remembering when God passed over uh, the Jewish people in judging their families, and he released them from Egypt. This happened around 1500 B.C., and they've been celebrating it every year. It's the biggest... Uh, celebration on the Jewish calendar. So thousands or tens of thousands of Jewish people would come into Jerusalem every year at this time to celebrate Passover. Well, Jesus has been doing this every year, probably his entire life. He would take the journey from upper um, Galilee down to Jerusalem where he would celebrate the Passover. So he knew the road. He was familiar with the surroundings. And according to the book of John, that gospel writer in chapter 12, that Saturday night before the Sunday we're about to look at, he stayed the night with friends. Because again, this is a familiar journey. He stayed the night with Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. They're in a community of Bethany. So I want you to see this map because he's about to enter Jerusalem. And just as he's about to enter Jerusalem, there that Saturday night, he stays in Bethany, about two miles out from the Jerusalem wall. And here on this map, you can see that we'll go up to the city of Jerusalem. That's actually the city on a hill. It's a steep climb. And as they went into the city of Jerusalem, they were going there to go to the temple so that they could celebrate Passover. So Jesus, along with his 12 disciples, have made this journey once again, like he did every year. But this year, everything was about to change. Something was about to be different because Jesus is about to make a historic announcement. So as we begin this journey, as we retrace the steps of Jesus in his final week, we will see the week that changed the world. So if you've got your Bibles, let's pick that story up in Mark chapter 11, and we'll begin in verse 1. Mark chapter 11, verse 1, it says, As they approached Jerusalem, they, meaning Jesus and his 12 disciples, and they came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, so they're just outside of Jerusalem as we just saw, Jesus makes this really odd request. They're thinking, yep, just another Passover, another year where we're going to Jerusalem like we always do. But watch what Jesus does. It's very odd. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, all right, guys, I want you to go to the village ahead of you, 
And just as you enter there, you will find a colt or a donkey tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? This is what I want you to say. The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. Now, if you write in your Bibles like I do, would you just write right there, Zechariah 9, 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Here's why. What Jesus is doing here is he is making a, a historic announcement. Because back in Zechariah 9, 9, this Old Testament prophet, he said, one day you will know the long-awaited Messiah is here when he does this. He will enter Jerusalem riding a donkey. And Jesus, remember, by now, he is extremely popular. He's like a rock star there in first century. Like, everybody's talking about Jesus because he's going around doing all these miracles. He's healing people. And everyone, if there were newspapers, he would be the headline. If there were websites, he would be the the clickbait for everybody. Everybody at night is sitting around the dinner table talking about this Jesus. Did you hear what he did at the Sea of Galilee today? Did you hear what he did now? Everybody's talking about this Jesus. And so when Jesus comes to enter into Jerusalem, there's like this electricity because it's Jesus and everybody's gathering around, everybody's pointing to him, everybody's curious. But Jesus isn't going to just be popular. Jesus is about to announce, I am the Messiah. And he does that by getting this donkey as a fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. And all of a sudden, they go and do exactly what Jesus has said, and they don't know it yet, but the crowd is about to go nuts There are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people who are gathering and entering into Jerusalem and watch as the disciples follow his command. Look at verse 4. And so they went and they found a colt outside in the street tied to a doorway. And as they untied it, sure enough, someone standing there asked, why are you doing this, untying that colt? And they answered, well, as Jesus had told them, and the people let them. Well, of course, Jesus is so popular. As soon as they say it's for him, they're going to be like, yeah, I'd love for him to ride on my donkey. Absolutely, you can use it. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks over it, Jesus sat on it. And many people, when they saw this, they spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Now, again, I would write in my Bible right here, John 12, 13, because here's where we see in that gospel that they were actually cutting palm branches and laying them before the feet of Jesus. And that's why we call this Sunday, where we often read this passage, Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter. Because now they're laying their palm branches before Jesus. And Jesus is entering, and everyone is excited because he's not only healing people, could he be the Messiah that our people have been waiting for, for all these years, for history? He's claiming to be the Messiah. And now I want you to watch their reaction. And this is where it's like a parade where Jesus is entering Jerusalem. Look at verse 9. It says, Those who went ahead and those who followed, so there's a crowd there that's large, they begin to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I would write in my Bible, Psalm 118, verse 26, because they're actually quoting that psalm here, and here's why that's important. It's often called one of the Psalms of Ascent. They're ascending into Jerusalem, and they're saying what they often said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But this time it's different, because they're looking over to a man, and they're saying, Hosanna, 
which means save us now. They're saying, save us now. There he is. Save us now. And remember, they're the ones who have all these problems because they're the ones who have the Roman oppression of this government. And they're thinking, the government's evil. We have problems. The politicians are evil. All these difficulties we have in life are because of the government. And I think the greatest problem we have is caused by this government. And he's going to save us now. They're excited. Save us now. Save us now. You can imagine the chant of Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're all walking up toward Jerusalem, ready to celebrate this Passover and everybody there's there's so much momentum in this environment there's so much electricity in their conversations Hosanna Hosanna and everything seems normal until the very next verse when all of a sudden they shift from the psalm of ascent recorded in Psalm 118 and they begin to add their own words which are not recorded in Psalm 118 and all of a sudden something shifts and it reveals who they expect Jesus to be. Look at verse 10. It says, Blessed is the coming kingdom. I would underline the word kingdom. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now remember, David, a thousand years ago, was the king of the nation of Israel. And they're thinking, oh, those were the glory days. This Messiah, this Hosanna is going to restore us to have military power, to have uh, political power. All they're thinking is, I want Jesus to make my life smooth. They're looking at their temporary problems on earth. And they want Jesus, just like we do, to solve the problems they're facing. And they're falling for the lie that I think I am always tempted to fall for, and I bet you are too. And that is to think my obedience will lead to a smooth life. That following Jesus closely will equal a smooth life. And so they're going, okay, Hosanna, restore our nation back to the way it was under King David. This is an exciting desire, and they're looking at you, they're going, we want you to do that. They're thinking politically you can rescue us. And how many of us, if we're honest, sometimes put our hope in politics just like they did 2,000 years ago? And I'll tell you what you already know. Anytime we put our hope in politics, it's just a matter of time before we are disappointed. Isn't that right? It's just a matter of time. In fact, I would say it and take it a little bit further and say spiritual maturity is learning to be active in politics while keeping our hope in Jesus. Amen? I would also go further and say that spiritual maturity is learning to be active in issues of injustice, learning to be active in issues of people in poverty, people who are homeless. Any evil you see in the world, taking, uh, getting your hands involved and being active in that problem while keeping our hope in Jesus. And what these people are doing is they're seeing Jesus and they're going, way to go, I'm glad you're here, now I'm going to put my hope in the problem that I see before me. And they keep their hope in the wrong place. And it's just a matter of time before they're going to be severely disappointed. You see, why were they disappointed? Because they wanted a Jesus who would fix their earthly problems. But they got a Jesus who was here to fix their eternal problems. They wanted a Jesus who would free them from Roman oppression. Well, of course. But instead, they got a Jesus who freed them from the judgment of their own 
sin. They wanted a Jesus who would uh, free them from the, you know, sort of judge the bad guys, right? Those out there. But they got a Jesus who focused on their sins first. See, it turns out they had a plan and they just wanted God to fulfill their desires. And this is a dangerous way to live our life, isn't it? Because a lot of times, life will not turn out the way we want. And where we anchor our hope with the dark places, with the confusing places, and with the hard places determines how our faith rides out from here on out. And these people who are going with Jesus up the hill into Jerusalem, guess what? By the end of the week, they've abandoned Jesus. Many of them have turned on Jesus because their life won't turn out the way they thought. Now, I want you to see how the rest of the day ends because this has been a pretty dramatic first day. Look at verse 11. It's the final verse of that day one. That Sunday it says, So Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple courts, and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out back to Bethany with the twelve. He returned. It turns out it was just a scouting trip. He goes into Jerusalem. He kind of gets a lay of the land, and he leaves. And what we see right out of the gate is the lie that we all face day in and day out, and it is this. These people believed if they followed Jesus closely that they would have a smooth life. And they're about to find out in a few days that's not the guarantee. And I don't know about you, I don't like that. I would rather know that if I follow Jesus closely that my life would be smooth. But if I set myself up for that expectation, it's just a matter of time before I become disillusioned too. Now, that's day one. Jesus goes back to Bethany with his disciples. And now we're about to begin day two. And I think this will be a Jesus that we aren't comfortable seeing. Jesus behaving differently than we imagined. Look at verse 12. It says, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. I love that. Jesus was hungry. Like very human, right? I love that maybe he loved Chick-fil-A and it was closed on Sunday and now it's Monday. So he knows he can swing by, right? Jesus is hungry. Jesus is hungry and it says, Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. However, when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not in the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And at first I'm like, man, that's pretty reactionary. Is Jesus just angry? It's like, did he pull in Chick-fil-A and ask for a fruit cup? And they say, hey, we're out of fruit today. And he's like, well, may no one ever eat from this Chick-fil-A again, right? But that's not the case at all. What he knew was that a farmer already knows this, and that is a fruit tree that doesn't bear fruit is worthless. But more than that, it's a fig tree. And his disciples who heard him say that already know that is a word picture, that is an image used throughout the Old Testament to illustrate the nation of Israel. And he is saying there is lacking in fruit this nation. In fact, Luke, you might even write in your Bible, Luke 19.41, in this same scene is when Jesus looks over Jerusalem in this moment and he begins to weep because he knows difficult days are coming and that the entire city and the temple will be destroyed by A.D. 70. In just a few years from this moment, Jesus knows difficult days are coming. I don't know about you, but that, that helps me to know that in advance of my pain, Jesus has seen it, and he has wept, and he mourns, 
and he cares with deep empathy, just like he did on this day. He wept because he knew the pain that was coming, and he knew their unrealistic expectations based on what they wanted Jesus to do. Now, here's where Jesus acts a little differently than we're comfortable. Look at the next verse. It says in verse 15, On reaching Jerusalem, so he finally gets there. We're now into Monday. Jesus entered the temple courts, so there are different courts outside of the big temple, different courtyards. And he reaches the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling the doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for, and I would underline this, all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. So right out of the gate, doesn't it feel like a wild, wild west scene? Like Jesus just walks in and he's just like overturning these tables and money's clanging on the floor and everybody's standing there and they're just kind of looking around. And he's like, you've made this a den of thieves. I'm telling you, it's supposed to be two things, he said. It's supposed to be a place of prayer and it's supposed to be for all nations. And everybody's looking around going, what in the world just happened? Well, part of it helps to remember how this whole facility was built. We have the temple, and in the temple we have the Holy of Holies where the high priest would go. In the greater temple, the Jewish priest could go. And then you get to that first ring of the courtyard, and that's where Jewish men could go. Remember, we're in the first century. You go to the next courtyard, and that's where the Jewish women could go. And then you go to the next courtyard outside of that, which would be the very first one that you would enter, and that's where the Gentiles, those of us who were non-Jewish, could go. And we could experience the wonder and the sovereignty of God. And why is it that Jesus is so angry? Is it because they're selling stuff? After all, they're getting ready for the sacrifices that are required for the Passover. Why is he so angry? Because he's saying, my house is to be a house of prayer, which reveals who we believe is ultimately in control, how we pray. And number two, it's supposed to be for all nations. But along the way, somewhere, because it was just more practical, it had become more of a holy huddle, where people were just gathering who were Jewish, and they were using all the courtyards to try and buy and sell these sacrifices for the Passover. And Jesus is like, no, Gentile people can no longer come here to find the wonder of God because of the practice and the practicality of the way you're doing the buying and selling. You see, it turns out God gets really angry when his people no longer pray and when his people no longer reach out to those who are far from him. That's why I love LifePoint Church in its DNA is about both of those things. In fact, I love this quote from Pastor George just a few weeks ago where he said this, LifePoint Church will continue never stop growing as long as there is one person who hasn't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Guess what? We are after them. Amen? This is why we exist. Amen. So Jesus turns over the tables and the money's flying and everybody's kind of sitting there wide-eyed, saucer-eyed. They're kind of looking at each other like, what just happened? And I've always pictured Jesus just walked out and just kind of left them for awkward conversations. Like, we follow that guy? He didn't seem very nice. Like, why would he do that? Man, don't, don't mix your money with mine. I don't know how much I had. What do we do? How do we go from here? What are we going to do the rest of the day? 
But that's not what happened at all. After Jesus turned over the tables, and after he made the scene and made the proclamation that my house is to be a house of prayer, and, and, I, and I want to make sure that this is for all nations, you know what he did next? He stayed right there for the rest of the day, and he healed people, and he taught them. What a loving God. He spent the rest of the day with the people he had just challenged. He didn't walk off, which would have been a lot easier. He stayed. And Matthew records that he was healing people. And right here in the book of Mark, it records that he was also teaching people. He spends the rest of the day teaching and healing. Now look at the last part of that day. It says, the chief priest and the teachers of the law, they heard this, what Jesus was saying. And they begin to look for a way to kill him. They literally begin to plot to have Jesus executed. And they would be successful in their eyes later that week. This was a turning point for the religious who saw Jesus. Walk in and take control and focus on prayer and all nations. And then watch the rest of that verse. After they made plans to kill him. Why? Because they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teachings. He stayed to teach. He stayed to love. And now watch. When evening came, now that's a full day. I don't know when you want me to be done, but I bet you want me to be done before evening came, right? I can tell you do. You're being nice. You're thinking this is his first day. Surely he won't do that. So when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city, and guess where they went? They went back to Bethany, and we're ending day two. We've got a group of people who are about to be disillusioned because they think obedience equals a smooth life. And now we've got another religious group of people who are busy doing what they think they're supposed to be doing, and Jesus goes, no, 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 no. Being a holy huddle isn't what I was about. What I want you to is pray, 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 and then I want you to reach other people who don't know me. And everybody's all confused, like, well, what, what is it you want, Jesus? And Jesus is being very clear what it is he wants. And that's just in the first two days. And now it says in the next verse, as morning came, in verse 20, it says, In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. This is the one that early that morning that he had cursed. And it's Peter. Remember, Peter's there. He's walking alongside Jesus with the other disciples. Peter remembered and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, there's the fig tree that you cursed, and it has withered. And now Jesus is about to give, and this is the last few verses we're going to look at. Jesus is about to say something that has messed a lot of people up in these next few verses. Let me read it, and then let me tell you why it messes so many people up. Look at verse 21. It says, Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain... Go throw yourself into the sea, and then does not doubt in their hearts, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying it, that you will hold anything against, that you will not hold anything against anyone, you will forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. 
Here's why that passage messes a lot of people up. Because it seems to imply that if you don't have your prayer answered, you're the problem. It's because I lacked faith that it wasn't answered, or it's because I had enough faith that it was answered. As if I know what's best always, therefore I can inject faith and get what I want. However, and, and, and if you took this as a standalone, that would be a logical conclusion. But we don't read any other document and just take two or three sentences and make that a truth. We always read it in context of the entire document. And Jesus in his life consistently did this. He consistently said, submit to the Father's will. We see that in the Lord's Prayer, his very first message. We see that later on this week he'll be at Gethsemane and he is saying, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He's saying, I, I start with this. I submit to your will, and then I bring my cares before you. So when we look at these verses, verse 23, 24, and 25, and we see it in context of, I begin with his will, not mine. Well, that changes the way I pray, doesn't it? And so I just want to give you a quick posture that you can take when you're praying, when you're in the middle of a place where you're trying to make a hard decision, or when you're in the middle of a place where life has disappointed you, let me give you three words that may help as you and I pray. This has helped me in the way that I pray, based on the way Jesus would pray in these difficult moments. These are the three words. Submit, shape, and seek. You may even want to write those down. Submit, shape, and seek. Here's why. When Jesus later on went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's about to be arrested, he would eventually be tried, then he would be crucified. He was facing something he didn't want to face in that moment. He even said, Father, if it's your will, may I not have to drink from this cup. And then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Submitting to God's will out of the gate is one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? But let's be honest. If I go to God and my open hands are full of my plans... I don't have any room to receive God's plans. So that means when I pray, I know what I want, but can I just come with empty hands and begin by saying, God, I know what I want, but ultimately I want your will. Even if I don't understand it, even if I don't like it, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. This is the posture of a surrendered heart. And give you the next word, and that is shape my desires. God, would you shape my desires? Because I know what I want, but you may not want me to have that. So whatever your will is, God, would you begin to shape my desires toward your will? Because sometimes I don't even want his will, but sometimes I want to want his will, right? So God, would you just shape my desires? And then finally, number three, would you seek, 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 just persistently, repetitively come to God with the same posture? And this is what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, I don't want to drink from this cup. That was his desire. But then he wanted God to shape it. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. And you know what he did after that? He went to his disciples who were asleep and he thought, ah, oh, these guys. And he came back and he prayed the exact same prayer again. And then when he was done, he went to his disciples, found them asleep again. You know what he did? He came back and he prayed the exact same prayer. again. Three times the gospel records that he prayed, if it's thy will, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, 
but thy will be done. We have to repetitively come back to God. Why? Because we have to be shaped. This is hard. We have all this noise in our life. And to continually say, God, I want to submit to your will. Well, whatever happened to these people who are walking up the hill with Jesus? Well, eventually most of them turned on Jesus. Nearly all of them abandoned Jesus. But in their defense... They hadn't yet seen the cross. They hadn't yet seen the extravagant love of God displayed on this Roman cross where he died for their sins to solve their greatest need. So I always feel like I need to give them some slack because the reality is they did what we all do. They looked at circumstances trying to find God's goodness. They looked at circumstances trying to find God's love. It turns out they were walking with someone who was headed to a cross He left heaven to come to earth so that they could be restored in their relationship with God and they could be freed from sin's judgment. That's how much they were loved. But they missed it. They didn't know it. And in the same way, we are sometimes tempted to look at our circumstances. And I just want to say this. God's love is not demonstrated in my circumstances. God's love was demonstrated on the cross. Let me say that one more time because that's hard to really believe. It's easy to say for preach. God's love is not demonstrated in my circumstances. God's love was demonstrated on the cross. It's been done. It's been marked. It's been clarified. It's been anchored. I don't have to wonder if I'm loved. You don't have to wonder if you're loved. No matter what your circumstances are, you are deeply loved. So much so that Jesus went to a cross for you so that your greatest need, not your temporary problems that you and I see and we have a front row seat to, but instead your greatest need, your sin payment, could be fully paid, one that you and I could never pay because he loves you that much. And in the meantime, there's this blurriness that we go through life and we can't fully see or understand, but there's a God whose plan is best, who loves you deeply, who we can trust and we can cling to the one who loves us most. Let me say to those of you who may be teenagers or in your 20s, And maybe you follow some social media influencers. Maybe you, whether it's YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, you you have folks who are influential in your life. They're fun. They're insightful. And let me tell you what you already know. They don't care about you. They'll never give their life for you. And they are suggesting a roadmap for your life. And I want to encourage you to continue to enjoy them, but ultimately... Make the greatest influencer in your life the one who loves you most. Make the greatest roadmap of your life his word. Even when it feels archaic, even when it feels difficult, resist the temptation to follow the most popular or the one that feels the most attractive or that feels the easiest. That's an easy roadmap a lot of people go down. But instead, follow the roadmap of the one who loves you most. Now for the rest of us, Let's be honest, we're exactly the same way. You follow great voices in our culture. Maybe you follow CNN. Maybe you follow Fox News. Maybe you follow talk radio or a podcast or your favorite author on an audio book. I'd say continue to enjoy the people that give you insight and that give you entertainment and that help you with information. But at the end of the day, they're all trying to offer you a roadmap in life. 
And can I tell you gently what you already know? They don't care about you. They'll never give their life for you. But there is a God who loves you deeply, who has offered you a roadmap that may sometimes be harder, but it's trustworthy and true. It's a roadmap that sometimes feels like it's extremely difficult and maybe even dated, but it's a God who loves us most, who's offered us a roadmap. And can I just encourage you, cling to the one who loves you most. Cling to the one who's in control and who has a very specific plan for your life. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. He's a lover of your soul. No matter what your circumstances, you are loved. Now, would you say this with me one more time? But God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We'll finish with that here in just a minute because I know you can do better than that and so can I. All right? Let me close with these four questions. Number one. Has your life, any area of your life, turned out differently than you thought? I can't help but wonder if our Father right now is inviting you to talk to Him about that. Inviting you into a lengthy conversation, maybe today or this week. Number two, how are you experiencing God's love? I think one of the hardest things in our world is to unplug from our circumstances so that we can experience God's love. Whether it's in his word, whether it's in prayer, whether it's in Christian spiritual conversations, whether it's in creation, how are you experiencing God's love? This week, maybe you need a calendar in some time to experience God's love personally. Number three, are there any other voices that you're trusting or listening to more than God's? And then number four, is there someone in your life who is encouraging you to trust God's plan, even when it's hard. Even when it's hard. All right. At the end of the day, here's the bottom line. God's love is not demonstrated in my circumstances. God's love was demonstrated on the cross. So now let's stand as we close together and let's say this verse, and we're going to repeat this verse throughout the series. You're going to know it like the back of your hand if you don't already, but I want you to say it out loud with me as we conclude together. Romans 5, 8, it's on the screen. Say it with me. But God demonstrates his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for Romans 5, 8. Let's pray. Father, I can't help but think that for all of us who are here, there's no doubt been moments of our life, maybe we're in the middle of it right now, where life has not turned out quite like we thought. We don't have to question your love for us. May we cling to the one who loves us most and live in the shadow of the cross again this week as we remember the week that changed the world. Father, just give us fresh eyes for you again. May we be different because we spend time with you this week in a fresh way. God, use this church to spread your love to our neighbors, to spread your love to this community. May they know we are your disciples by the love we have for one another. 
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.